Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Almost Enlightened podcast. I'm your host, Alex Morin, and I am thrilled to introduce you to Michael Maloney, founder of The Maloney Method. He's an entrepreneur, a teacher, a school principal, an author, and school psychologist. Beginning in 1975, he integrated behavior analysis, direct instruction, and precision teaching into what's now known as the Maloney Method. His staff and colleagues have spent the past 50 years helping students who are at risk of failure. They've done this in public, private, and charter schools, as well as in learning centers, utilizing software, training, and supervision. However, they're facing a significant problem. We're here today to discuss that problem and develop a better understanding of the situation and explore potential solutions. I'd like to introduce you to Michael Maloney. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, Alex. It's nice to be with you on your show. Uh, thanks so much. And I'm equally as thrilled to have you on my show. We met for our audience uh, about a week ago uh, through a LinkedIn introduction. I like to make friends on LinkedIn. I'm constantly doing that, expanding my network, trying to learn about what people do, what their challenges are, what their triumphs are. And the more that I am exposed to cool people and interesting people, the more I can grow, the more I can share. And meeting you was a real joy. I had a wonderful conversation with you. I began to understand what you've done over your career, what your passion is, and also that we have an ongoing challenge that we need to confront as a society. And so this is why I'm so thrilled to have you here. Um, do you want to start off, Michael, by giving us some context and letting us know a little bit about what we ought to be examining these days and what's what's got you on fire? What's your passion and what are you going to be working on for the next five years? <laughs> next. Uh, well, Alex, very simply, you know, we have we have 90 million people on this planet who are illiterate. Mm -hmm. And we have had a solution to the problem, at least in the English language, for now almost 50 years. And education has systematically ignored the solution, paid little, if any, attention to the ways in which we could improve the lives of 10 million children who are in public schools and who are illiterate. Mm -hmm. And we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we have not moved the stakes in 50 years. And we have a lot of casualties as a result. Those statistics are alarming, aren't they? They're and absolutely, yeah, they're, def, they're, they're frightening because look at the lives that are being underdeveloped and underused and, and basically wasted. Absolutely. And when you take a look at the statistics that you point out in your book, which is a phenomenal read, by the way, Teach Your Children Well, those statistics are incredible. Not only do they point to an alarming rate of illiteracy and, uh, and a lack of ability to be able to even compute on the math side of the equation, but they point to a society that um, is not only illiterate, but a large percentage of those who are illiterate end up incarcerated, end up disadvantaged end up without fantastic jobs. Uh, this is a problem, isn't it? Oh, it's huge. Uh, I mean, essentially, you have 50% of North America living from paycheck to paycheck because they can't get a job that pays well enough for them to move forward. You have 20 to 25% of your population in North America on welfare. 
And uh, these people are largely under school. The ones who have dropped out, they're they're working whatever they can get. They're trying to raise kids. It's uh, I've been at this a long time, and it's really difficult to watch these people struggle as mightily as they do mm-hmm. and get so little in return for it when we have options available that could change that. Michael, you've been a teacher, an instructor, a principal. Uh, you have done all of these things throughout a 50-year career. In the book, you talk about being uh, at the university level, and you decided to, quote unquote, get into the trenches and get into the public school system because you recognized that you might be able to make a difference. So you started doing something a little bit different, and you started this idea. Would you walk us through the concept of leaving university to get into the public school system and what you wanted to accomplish? It, it all rests at the feet of, of basically three or four people who were my mentors. Okay. One of those people uh, was Eric Houghton, uh, to whom my book, Teacher Children Well, is dedicated. Eric and I met when we, were, when we had both left uh, you know, universities or colleges and come back to public school systems to try to make changes. And Eric was trained by Ogden R. Lindsley, the creator of Precision Teaching Mm -hmm. at the University of of Kansas, and Eric was his first doctoral graduate. So he had a really in-depth knowledge of everything there was to know about precision teaching. I had just spent the summer with Zig Engelman out at the University of Oregon at Engelman Becker Corporation, being trained as a direct instruction trainer and and teacher. And uh, Eric and I got together in the same school board at the same time and immediately realized the capacity that could occur if we interconnected direct instruction as an instructional system. Mm -hmm with precision teaching as a measurement system. We were both behavior analysts. We both had the influence of Fred Skinner, B.F. Skinner, uh, and his student. Ogden Lindsley was one of Fred Skinner's students. Uh, Ogden uh, taught many others. And so between them and my connections with the direct instruction group, particularly Zig, uh, we were able to see the capacity to use Skinner's work to get the children in their seats and paying attention. Because mm-hmm. he thought, as the kind of the father of behavior analysis, he he showed us how to get that done. Okay. And then there's uh, Zig's method of teaching, the direct instruction component that every concept or every application has one and only one possible interpretation. So children learn at a very fast rate. And then we had Ogden's work to be able to measure in one minute whether or not your teaching made any difference. And we put those three together. And we took them into schools around Hastings County here in Ontario, Canada. And uh, our kids who were in special ed we're gaining a couple of years every year until finally the parents started coming into the schools asking to have their kids transferred into our special ed classes because mm-hmm. they were doing better than their their peers, better than their their brothers and sisters who were in regular ed. Yes. Uh, well, the school couldn't handle that, so they just got rid of us. Wow. And so when you say two years of education in one year, you are meaning that they've done two scholastic years worth of education in a year's span. 
they're able to to assimilate all of that information in that same amount of time. Absolutely. And that's that's as opposed to a half a year that most students in special education manage to achieve in the course of a year. Right. And it's not the students and it's not the teachers. OK, Those teachers are knocking themselves out yes. uh, trying to help these kids, but they have horrible training. They have they have the worst tools you can imagine mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do. Yes. And the system simply fails them and fails to make any changes that would allow them to to become more skilled and more more professional. So having put this in the public school system in Hastings County for a time, for a period of time, you said they had had enough of it after demonstrating success. Yeah. Were they privy to that success? Did they see the results? Oh, yeah, absolutely they... they were. They were they were haunted by it because they knew what was going to happen. And what I mean, was happening? Alex, ask yourself, what is it that school boards really want? And and currently today, and it's been that way for a very long time, is they want peace in the valley. Mm-hmm. They want there to be no disruptions. They want steady as she goes. Right. Well, we created waves. And that's happened in a number of different systems that I can point to. And every time it happens, the people who started it get left out. They get fired. They get transferred to, you know, the furthest possible school away with the smallest possible group of kids. So it's it's happened many times. And Michael, you you said that um, you asked me the question, what does a school board want? And I would have thought, I would have answered for their students to improve their learning, for their students <laughs> to incrementally improve every don't, single year don't by drink orders that of magnitude. Kool-Aid. No, do not drink that Kool-Aid. So I would be naive in assuming that's oh, the yeah, goal, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I and, and I'm not naive and I and I I sort of joke about that, but I it it's it's unbelievable that in spite of the success that you were realizing and in reading the book, you weren't the only place testing this methodology out, right? It's oh, been tested in, in different places. Now, walk me back to was it was it the FDR era when they started uh, Head Start and Follow Through? Is, no, is that, that was Roosevelt. No, that's Lyndon Baines Johnson. Ah, Johnson. And okay. that's right after Watts was on fire and the tanks were in the streets in Detroit. Yes. Newark yes. was in flames. It was when the black population just stood up and said, we're not taking this anymore. And they rioted. Well, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, OK, get the troops in the street, get this thing settled down. Then we're going to deal with it. And, and if you remember, you probably weren't even born back then, but uh he started what was called the War on Poverty. Yes. The War yes. on Poverty was well to documented. give these people, yeah, give these people who are in the ghettos and in the rural poor a chance to have a share in the American dream. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, he mandated the what was in the Office of Education to find a way to help these people early on. And that was the start of Head Start, which is something most people know about. And Head Start wasn't even a year old when they realized it wasn't going to be enough. Mm-hmm. And so they needed to follow this through. So he, he sent out another edict uh, called the Follow Through Project, where we were teachers and educational systems were going to follow these children through the first three years of school, the primary grades. And it was okay. called Project Follow Through. And uh, they asked everybody who had a possible way of doing it. They gave them every opportunity. They supported it for one 
well, $750 million for the first three years. Mm-hmm. $1,975. Incredible. Yeah. They got the results. They didn't like them. They buried them. <laughs> Replicated the experiment. Got the same results again. Buried them again. Wow. I mean, it's stunning. It's And it seems systematic. Everywhere that we've put direct instruction in, that we've used behavioral analysis and combined the techniques, it seems as though everything's been stymied. And does that yeah. have to do with ego? Does that have to do with wanting them to maintain that peace that you say? Yeah, you know, it, has, I, I just, it, has, it has to do with not having to change. Right. right. It has to do with not being scientific. Mm-hmm. There is no science of education. Right. There is a science of engineering uh-huh. and a science of medicine and a science of dentistry. Right. But we don't we don't honor science in education. I they see. just wait for the next, you know, flavor of the week to come through. So oftentimes, Michael, it seems that that the response is well, we can't do this. It costs too much money, right? That seems to be the prevailing mindset when it comes to a public disclosure of why this isn't going to work. Would I be accurate in assessing that? And is that, is that, is that a bunch of BS? Yes, it is. And it is accurate. They they are always begging for more money. And the, the Americans are North American Canada and the U S are spending somewhere close to 10% of their GDP on education. Mm-hmm. The and that puts them are... probably in the top echelon of the world in oh, terms of absolutely. spending on education. And yet, do the results reflect uh, the investment that they're making in education? Absolutely not. If you look at the international testing, we do not finish in the top third. Isn't that fascinating? So it, there is no correlation then between the amount of money you spend on education and the results that are garnered. It's not, there's little, if any, correlation. We get beaten by Slovenia in math. Yep. <laughs> Incredible. Wow. It's all possible to change, though. We could change that in in a decade if we really wanted to. So when someone says then, when a government says, uh, yeah, not going to happen, this this investment's going to be too much, why, why don't we look at the big picture often enough? Because the ramifications of not investing in education and not changing the education system, it seems to me that in business, we, we call this an opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is enormous, right? And the opportunity cost is people without jobs, people without education, people without an ability to communicate effectively, people without an ability to be able to function in society because they don't have the basic education that allows them to even read a subway map, for instance. Yeah, and there was an alarming statistic in your book yeah. that said that 80% of people can't even read, or actually 80% of people can't calculate a tip at a restaurant, and mm-hmm. 80% of people can't read a proper uh, you know, bus map. They, can, they, can, they can't read a map correctly. That is incredible. Well, Alex, the, the thing is, they don't need to change. Mm-hmm. Education has been doing this for about as long as it's been around. Yep. And so uh, not having 30% or 35% of your students learn to read this year in a kindergarten class is not considered a big deal. And when they get to grade four, they just stick a label on them and call them dyslexic or whatever and pass them on out the system. Well, that, that system has not any urgency 
to make a change that would make a difference for these kids. And that's what's so absolutely tragic and criminal about it. It is tragic. And walk me through that concept of putting a label on somebody and then dismissing the problem. Well, would, yeah. you, would you say that many of these labels we put on children at around that grade four level, not that they're erroneous, but would you say that in spite of those labels with your teaching method, would these kids stand a chance? Could they be as literate as everybody else? Absolutely. We've proven that so many times. Uh, I mean, I can think, for example, of one set of clients that I had. They were children who were in the care of of uh, the local Hastings County uh, Children's Aid Society. And they asked us to, uh, if we, they were all 13 to 16 years of age, okay. and they were all way, way behind, well behind in their reading. And they asked us if we could fix that. Well, in 36 instructional hours, we raised those kids' reading scores by two years as measured by standardized tests that they would accept. Uh, we also had these kids reading fluently from, you know, books that were three years, two to three years ahead of where they had been 36 hours before. So can it be done? Yeah, it can be done by anybody who has the the skill to teach a direct instruction lesson that has the skill to measure the performance of the child and to make the changes as you need to. So there's no need for this. This is completely fixable, but nobody cares to fix it. Everybody is drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, that is tragic. And let me tell you something that I've figured out in the corporate world. Uh, lately, we've seen the proliferation of data and analytics make their way into all kinds of areas, not only in business, but we've seen that in athletics as well. So it's not uncommon to take a look at your favorite sports team and say, oh, wow, they're making analytically based decisions on their roster, on who's going to be playing what position at what time. Do you find that the analytics... Do you find that those at times are difficult for administrators and teachers to deal with because it exposes them? It yeah, exposes exactly. That's exactly what it does. Right. That's exactly what it does. It exposes them for the lack of performance that we're seeing in 95% of our schools. And the bottom line is they don't want behavioral measures. Right. I mean, if you look at it from the perspective that every behavior has a frequency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what is the frequency, the appropriate range of frequency for, for example, for reading? Well, we know that humans speak at about 200 words a minute. So if we teach them to read at somewhere between 150 and 200 words a minute, they're considered fluent. If you look at all of the data in the field, well, uh, that's not hard to do. But we don't do that because it's seemingly too difficult for the administration to figure out that science can actually help them. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Um, okay. I had another question. I've written down a few questions here because I just loved your book. I love digging into it. And you went so many fascinating places, Michael. One of the questions that I had is in language, definitions are an important part of understanding, right? So we need to understand what the definition is. Right. However, an incomplete or an incorrect definition can be catastrophic, I think that we would agree. For example, many agencies have attempted to define literacy. 
What happens when we get the definition wrong, when we define literacy incorrectly? Because I've seen studies where literacy is defined a certain way, and if you cater to that definition of literacy, you are catering to the lowest common denominator and not actually uh, moving to uh, an instruction platform that allows people to maximize their abilities. And so is there a definition of literacy that you would share with me that makes sense in terms of being able to understand and quantify what literacy actually means? Okay, well, if, if you understand that every behavior has a frequency, I mean, you were born once, mm -hmm. you're likely only going to die once. Mm -hmm. There are some behaviors in your repertoire that are very significant, but very infrequent. And there are a large number of others that are very frequent and and have measures that we can understand easily. Right now, a lot of people are going around counting their steps because they want to get their exercise and they know that they, they're usually trying to hit 10,000 steps a day. Uh, well, okay, that's a behavior. Watch those feet move. See see how many you get. See if you're improving. Your, you know, your your instrument will tell you whether you are or not. Well, that's that we can do that with just about any behavior because all behaviors that are repeatable are also able to be counted. And if you count them, you can see the change from one stage to the next, whether it's an increase or a decrease or simply holding steady. And then now you just have to pick out, okay, so what's the range we need for a child to learn to read? Okay, well, they speak at 200 words a minute. Let's get them at least above 150 with zero to two errors because the errors are important as well. We can't let them be sloppy, fast readers. Okay. We need to correct those. But that assumes that you have a system that will allow you A, to measure it and B, to teach it. Well, we do happen to have those, although they are disdained by public education. Hmm. So fascinating. Fascinating. And where do and, we go from here? Well, you, you know, we've talked about the reasons that that education don't want to allow the system into into their curriculum. Um, what does it require? What does it require in order to make it happen? You know, it, is it, can we can we not debunk the argument? Can we not inoculate well, we have, against against the objection? Follow through project did that in spades like seven times and it was simply buried. In fact, the agency of the United States Department of Education, mm -hmm. a couple or a few years ago, they stopped publishing all of the information about direct instruction, precision teaching and behavior analysis because all of the studies were more than 20 years old and deemed to be no longer useful. Mm, I read in your book that it was the Reagan administration that shredded a ton of the documentation from that the was the actual project. data. Yeah, that was the actual material from the follow through project. But since mm -hmm. then, follow through is now like 30 years old and they just d decided the what's called the. Um, oh, what's the agency called? It's called the What Works Consortium. Okay. And the a Department of the uh, Educational, the National Educational System in the U.S., they simply stopped publishing it. They dumped like 100,000 studies of behavior analysis in classrooms over the side. Okay. They stopped disseminating information to the states and the schools and the districts about direct instruction and, and precision teaching. So, uh, you know, it, it's not only neglect, they are actively working against the adoption of these kinds of 
the highly successful methods. Okay, so let's let's get into that. Let's explore why that might be. Uh, oh, is there a nefarious um, is there a nefarious uh, ob- objective behind them stopping the publishing of this data behind them stopping the enablement of this type of teaching? Uh, what well, you say to that question? Know, there has to be. Uh, I'm not. I don't want to call it a conspiracy because mm-hmm. basically, but what what we do know is the Ford Foundation paid for a, a reanalysis of the data of follow through for through the uh, reading the International Reading Association and uh, came up with a, a another alternative view that said that they were all essentially the same. Hmm. Well, that's just that's just absolutely ludicrous. The other thing is the national uh, the organization prior to what works, uh, NEEP, it was called the National Education uh, Association. They they came out and said that there was no one answer. And so they blessed all 16 of the groups of the measures and the programs that were in follow through as though they were equal. I see. But when right they, when the, indeed they weren't. Oh, absolutely not. Right from right. the get go, direct instruction accounted for 75% of the variance in the data. Hmm. And the rest was accounted for by behavior analysis. There were, there were uh, Four, 14 that, duds. And yeah. two two clear cut winners, and yet two clear cut winners to be uh, equitable. Yeah, and and essentially there were some situations in which the control groups outperformed the experimental groups and the discovery models. <laughs> so wow. I, this is, but nobody cares. You know, it's it's now it's a long past study. It's been dumped over the side. Uh, people are not paying attention to it. So uh, you should expect this to continue because it keeps the schools and the school districts uh, able to not have to deal with science data. Okay. Okay. So so I'd like to pursue this line of questioning just a little bit further with regard to the intent behind the blockading, I'll call it, of this method of instruction. Uh, you wrote an interesting paragraph in your book, and you discussed the threat to freedom and democracy in a society in which a large percentage of the population is illiterate. And I'm paraphrasing here, but to some extent, you indicated that those who are illiterate are bound to receive their information from uh, the easiest means of receiving it. So uh, jingoism, jingoism, I think you called it in, in the book, which I, I kind of like that term. I hadn't heard it before. So these little sound bites that that are on social media these days, that are on mainstream media, that are in newspapers. And if we're only following a certain amount of information that's coming our way through a limited amount of data points, isn't that a threat to democracy? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Of course it is. And why do you think Putin right now wants to have all of the news carefully screened and vetted before his people get to see it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How every dictator we've ever had has the same thing. Get control of the communication media. Once you have that, the population in large amounts will fall in behind you. So there seems to be a benefit then 
to perhaps governments or aspiring dictatorships or dictatorships, period, to maintain a population that is somewhat illiterate. No, it's not, because those people will not listen. They have their own ideas. They are learned. They are able to to analyze your arguments and come back with better ones. So are, no, are, are you, I, I didn't understand that. Are you talking about the people who are illiterate? They're the ones who are able. No, to? no. If you if you grow a society that is highly skilled, right? And Canada and Norway and Finland yes. and Germany and places like that have higher levels of literacy, and and you'll see that they have much, much stronger positions uh, politically. Okay, okay, I understand. Yeah. Uh, Now, on the other side, when Bangladesh separated from India, Mm -hmm. the Indian troops came through and massacred the intelligentsia so that they would all be illiterate. I see. That has happened in many cases, in many places. I would agree. I think that happens systematically uh, throughout civilization, the, yeah. the destruction of, of intellectuals. And, Look at Rwanda. Yes, yes, absolutely. Back in the day. So, again, this is not news, but it is a threat to our democracy. It's, it's a threat to developing the skills of, of people who can contribute but don't get a chance to. Dictators mm-hmm. are particularly fond of keeping people poor and uneducated. So that's that's a violation, really, in my opinion, of of human rights. And Absolutely. you know, someone someone like Engelman, who who wrote a terrific book, "War Against the Schools," um, he he actually goes as far as to say, what we're doing right now, preventing people from becoming literate, is akin to child abuse. In fact, I think that's a subtitle of the book. Uh, War. Well, that's the Barbara. Schools. Yeah. Or is that is that is that someone else? It's not Engelman. Uh, well, no, uh, she worked with Engelman, uh, Barbara, mm, she called it child neglect. Child neglect. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, depriving somebody a right to be able Bateman. to. Sorry. I'm sorry, say that again? Barbara Bateman. Okay. She was Barbara a Bateman. colleague right. of his, and, and she she called a spade a spade. She Excellent. Said it was like, this is child neglect. Yes, it yes, is. absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 you're saying it's not the teachers. They're they're not no, to blame no, whatsoever. I, I've known many teachers. I know many teachers. They're they're <laughs> unbelievable people with beautiful hearts and and, and no skills. doing everything. And, well, and no, no appropriate training, saying. no science. Right, right. No science. That's the that's what's missing. Flavor of the week is in favor. Right. And basically, you know, I don't I am a teacher. Okay. I I've been in the classrooms. I've been there for many years in different in different vein. But uh, essentially, uh, our teachers are not given the tools they need. Mm-hmm. They're not giving the training. They're not getting the supervision. Uh, and as a result, they're in there with like one arm tied behind their back. Yeah. And, and trying to do the best they can. And that explains why 50 percent of them quit within five years. So that was an interesting statistic as well. So 50% of teachers quit within five years. And of the 50% that quit, it's normally the the upper echelon, right? The ones that score the best on their aptitude tests, correct? If you look at the RAND Corporation study, and now it's getting old as well, but they did an analysis uh, because all of the students have to take SAT exams when they go to universities in the United States. Well, they analyzed the, the core 
competencies in the in the SAT, the program, the ones that are there in every SAT. And then they went out and and mass that against the various professions, uh, dentists, doctors, engineers, and the ones with the lowest scores on the SAT had selected education as their profession. Hmm. So the weakest SAT, you know, cadre selected education. That's got to tell you something. <laughs> and then 50% of them drop out. Yes. Yes. And it's the top 50% of that group. So, you know, that that leaves us with highly unskilled uh, teachers. And most of them, for example, hate teaching math because they didn't get math when they were a student and they now are being asked to teach it. And, you know, they there's no advanced math courses on their Vita when they went to university. They didn't take any math courses. Yeah, it, what what a shame. And I, I have a personal story that I think I shared with you when we spoke on the phone the other day. And my personal story is that I was always enamored with math. I found it exciting. I found it interesting. And regrettably, I got to grade 11 and I had a math teacher that um, that wasn't, wasn't able to make it interesting anymore, that wasn't able to make sense of math for me. And, uh, you know, at that age, unfortunately, I don't think that that kids take their education into their own hands um, I certainly didn't. I, I relied on the teachers to be able to provide me the in instruction and, and I would pick it up and I had other things to do, unfortunately. But I feel ripped off. I feel, I feel ripped off to this day that that grade 11 was a great turning point for me, was a, was a sorry, a terrible turning point for me in the sense that I, I lost my love of math and it never mm -hmm. came back. And I, I still love it. I still uh, have, have tried to embrace it, but I, I, I lack the fundamental skills that were required to move forward and really excel in the discipline. Sure. It's too bad that Khan Academy wasn't available when you needed that. Yeah. Yeah. And and not that I would have known about it at that age, you know, but. No. Well, maybe. Yeah, there are a lot Perhaps. of kids that do. The Salman Khan uh, just got famous by teaching kids who were in in high school how to do algebra because he had a, a cousin who needed help. And he wrote little programs for her and sent them off to her and she shared them. And before long, he had a thousand kids. So well, that's amazing. I mean, that's that's terrific, and and that that begot the success of of his company, right? That, yeah. Um, Thanks that, to Bill Gates. Right. Thanks to Bill Gates. Is is that right? Yeah. He funded well, it. Bill Gates gave him eight million dollars, and another organization, I believe, gave him eleven. I see. So he all of a sudden he had the funding to be able to do what he had started doing in his in his apartment after he quit being a fund manager. Okay. Okay, so then let's talk about possible solutions. So we've got the teaching solutions already. We've got the behavioral solutions. Yeah. Where's the missing gap? Like where? What? Like what is that okay. gap? And what do well, we need? What? What's your formula right now? <laughs> if you, if you could institute one, if you had carte blanche to do whatever you wanted to do, what would you do? All right. Well, let's start with the fact that you've got three million teachers in the U.S. Okay. None of whom are, or most of whom are not properly trained. Okay. They don't know, they don't have the science that we have. And, and they're doing the best they can with what they've got. And many of them are getting results, but they're not getting what we could have. So uh, how do you train 3 million teachers? That's a huge, especially when they're rotating, 10% are quitting every year. 
or, or leaving the profession, whether they're quitting or retiring or whatever. Okay. Uh, so there's 300,000 you're going to lose and another 300,000 are going to replace them. And they don't have any better clue than the ones who left. So now this just problem just gets to be huge. How do you, how do you, we don't have the personnel uh, to teach direct instruction. To teach and and yet, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to interject just for a second here, because that's a, that's a huge number. Three million teachers in the U.S. We're asking a question, how do you educate three million people? And I'll say rather tongue in cheek, but in some degree of seriousness, three million people a day learn a new um, theme in social media. So I, I don't know if you keep up with these things. I, I kind of don't, but I'm vaguely aware of them. But, you know, say on TikTok, there will be some type of a theme, like a weekly theme or a monthly theme. And so you embark upon this theme and you, what I'm saying is that there are people who will willingly learn like millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people that will you know, uh, autodidact, you know, just, just, just boom, they'll learn it themselves. So there's got to be a way to teach 3 million teachers. No. Well, if you can get their attention and if they, if they have some reason to do it and uh, right now, again, with our technologies, it's not welcome. Hmm. In fact, in the insurance with all the, the entire autism spectrum, Mm -hmm. situation the insurance companies have ruled out paying for anything that is done in the schools because it's seen as the the purview of education and so you can't teach a child to read if they have autism you can't teach them language skills that would be taught in their schools because the insurance companies won't pay for it so there's lots of there's lots of little uh, pitfalls between uh, in that situation. But essentially, what you have to do is get access to these people. And secondly, you've got to get them to fluent levels of performance with the material. And, and that's not a question of just listening to a tape and, and clicking a few keys. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to be able to present at a given rate specific tasks in a specific way that has five or six different steps to it. And if you get one of them wrong, the whole thing falls apart. So this how, is highly skilled information. How many hours of instruction would it take to bring a teacher up to that standard of education? That depends on the teacher. That depends on the trainer. It depends on the teacher. You know, I when I work with my clients, I tell them you have to be able to present five words in five different segments, in five different steps, mm -hmm. in one minute, without making two errors. And if you can't do that, you don't know the scripts well enough to be able to teach them to a child. Okay. okay. I mean, when I, when I get these people, the first thing I do is I ask them to do a sound fluency check. Tell me all these sounds. And they typically will make a half a dozen errors because that's not that's the way they've been taught them, but that's not the most efficient way to teach them to a child. Hmm. So, yeah. So, so this this begs a couple of questions. Then one of the questions that it begs is why aren't these standards at the university level as stringent <laughs> as the standards are when when a when a uh, a pre-medical student or a medical student is teaching. I mean, the, the degree to which they have to get it right um, is, it seems to be exponentially higher than the degree to which a teacher has to get their yeah, teaching training correct. Yeah. Medical schools require science. You right. have to do, I mean, they didn't always do that. 
doctors now are hygienic. They, 100 years ago, a third of their patients were dying in the hospitals of, of blood poisoning because they didn't right. wash their hands. Right. So this there's, is also, not- there's also a mechanical component to medicine that I'm sure has to be, uh, has to, has to be scrutinized and, and, and you have to perform to a certain level in order to get your, your, your medical degree, your medical license, right? Whereas yeah, if you want to be a specialist, you have to do residencies and there's, those yes. are highly governed and highly, uh, you know, evaluated. And yes. you, know, you can wash out by not being good enough. And that's, that's the way the system should be. But that, we don't do that. Uh, education knows nothing about science. No, no, that's Excellent. right. Okay. And, and so, why why do you think that is? Why do you think they haven't brought science it, into teaching? Because then they'd have to deal with all the problems. You know, you'd have to deal with the fact that this teacher doesn't know how to run a classroom. You'd have to teach them, teach them a classroom management system while they're still in the teaching training period. So they come into a classroom knowing how to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. You'd have to teach them how do you teach? Well, if you don't know any more than our system knows now, you're going to continue doing what they're doing now and getting next to nothing for it. They so need is, is this a next is this the, is this a next generation solution? No, no, to? we're we're doing it right now in Bangladesh. Okay, so let's talk about that. What are you doing in Bangladesh these days? <laughs> well, we we know that the children who are living in the slums of Dhaka in Bangladesh cannot afford to go to school. Mm-hmm. So that's because schools there are, in a sense, privatized. You have to be able to pay for tuition and books and transportation and clothing, you okay. know, the, the uniforms. They can't, these kids can't do that. They're living in the slums. Then there are 300 different slums in Dhaka. Mm-hmm. So uh, an organization, a small Canadian uh, not-for-profit uh, consortium went in there and st- with the help of Rotary, 10, 12 years ago, I started teaching these women how to learn English and learn how to read and write. Okay. Now we have some women who are competent. And so we created a digital reading program that does the teaching for you. It has direct instruction in a box. Okay. And all you have to do is listen to the child. And if they get it correctly, you hit next. Ah, okay. If, so so part I, of the solution is automating the teaching. Then. That's right. Well, anything that can be repeated is going to get digitized. Yes. Yes. If the cell gets it wrong, you hit back and it's it the the computer will say, listen, my turn. And it'll sound out the word and say, now do that with me. And the student and the child, the the computer and the child will do it together and says, now it's your turn. And the child will do it by himself. And if he gets it right that time, they hit next. Away we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to teach them the thousand most common words in English. That covers 85% of all of the words in English. Mm-hmm. And 65% of those words are phonetically regular. So if you can string the sounds together, you can get the word. Okay. Okay. So there's 650, uh, there's 650 of the thousand most common words that you just need to learn the sounds and learn how to string them together. Mm-hmm. Another third are irregular. Okay, we have a way of teaching that too. Okay, excellent. So excellent. Uh, that's straight out of Zig Engelman. Thank you, Zig. So I can I can think of a hundred reasons why a teacher, why uh, a school board would reject the notion of technology replacing teachers, right? But it but it doesn't replace, replace the teacher, no, does it, it, Michael? It doesn't replace no, them. It's no. not going to replace the teacher. The teacher's got still going to have twenty kids in that classroom. Yeah. 
They each got a tablet or a, a device of some sort. They're all working on something, whether it's math or reading or geography or whatever, and the teacher's going around helping. And I suppose it's not too different from advancements in technology with regard to medicine, right? So, you know, arthroscopic surgery, camera type stuff. We're using technology to enhance our ability to serve, right? Now you're talking. Okay. Give them better tools. Give them tools that they don't have to learn because we don't have the personnel and the capacity to teach enough of them. So, yes, I'm going to let you finish that. And then I've got another question. No, it's fine. Go. Okay, so so then do we now then boil down to the question of awareness? So meaning that I've seen instances where the world adopts something on a dime. Boom, we change, we pivot, and boom, you're off on a new direction. The pandemic has taught us that with regard to our ability to be able to communicate on Zoom and and coordinate business online. What's it going to take for the world to say, this is a massive problem? And the solution is right here in front of our eyes. It's documented. <laughs> it's evidenced. Uh, let, let's go. Let's just yeah, go. Well, let's, we, let's we've written happen. the very first program. Okay. Okay. It's a reading program. It teaches children the thousand most common words in English. It won't work in French or Spanish. All right. Somebody else is going to have to do the instructional design analysis and production of an equivalent one in Spanish or Japanese or whatever. We can't do that. Okay. We're stuck with English because it's all we got. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is with 60 lessons, we can, with 120 lessons, we can bring a child up to like the end of high school in reading. Awesome. And those those are now being developed. They're being used. And the women, uh, the mothers are teaching those to the each to five children in in the slums of Dhaka because they're they need to learn how to read. So they're not at the you know, they're not at the pity of the mullahs who are interpreting the Koran for them and then, you know, using them for their own ends. Mm. So, no, it's it's a. Uh, it's all possible. And what's it going to take? Uh, it's going to take more money than I've got, but we're just going to keep chipping away here. Uh, it's going to take awareness on the part of the people who are out there who have a child who isn't reading well. And that's right on our it's right on our website. They can go there and get free lessons to start out with. So it'll <laughs> come. It'll come. It's just going to take more work and more more marketing and more awareness. And so if the government if the government is reticent to invest money in this type of education, which it appears to be the case, is the money coming from the private sector? Is the money coming from nonprofits like <laughs> Rotary? Where where can it come from? Where will it come from? Where does it come from right now? It'll it'll eventually start coming from from the corporate sector because they'll see the the profit in this. They'll see the benefit. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes me cringe a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm weary of the capitalistic system that we live in at the moment and, yeah. and, uh, and the way it works, well, but I, it but I get very it. well with COVID and developing the, uh, the vaccines we needed. Yeah. It, it works well in wartime when you need to get a lot of things done in a hurry. So if we, re- we can't ignore it, it's going to be part of the mix. Okay. Let's see if we can clamp down on the, you know, on the kinds of excesses that would occur. Uh, Let's be better citizens about how we, you know, help one another. Um, But yeah, it's going to be uh, part and parcel of the corporate entity. 
Okay. Because that's the only, they're, only, they're the only ones big enough to do it. Yes, yes, yes. I just, I fear that that it gets buried by big business. That no, the measurement fear. will hold it. I'm not mm. the least bit afraid. Excellent. If this, if this child is not reading at 200 words a minute, 150, 200 words a minute, that's going to show up on their chart. And the chart is part of the program. And you can't get to the next lesson without doing it. Well, what I was getting at is that, say, say a corporation decides to invest in this technology and they're proving success and it becomes a profitable endeavor, it's only natural and logical that in our capitalistic society that that business is going to get bought, right? And then eventually yeah. it gets spun and, and it grows and it gets bought again by another company until it makes its way to the top of the chain, which is normally the case with most businesses. And so mm -hmm. you end up at the very top of the chain. And what we were talking about before is that at times, uh, governments, and I've seen it in big business, have an interest in people not being so educated, not being so literate. <laughs> and that's the fear I have. Now, you're, you're much more confident than me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace your confidence because <laughs> I want to be a confident dude also. <laughs> but this is my fear when I look at capitalism and I look at the, the, the model of, of business buying and where ultimately most businesses end up that are profitable. Well, if we can get to the point where we have everyone in North America basically literate, mm -hmm. that would be a huge step forward. It would and be then, huge. I agree. Yeah, and they will take their own destiny from there. We won't need to worry about where they're going. They will have the tools to govern themselves, and they will do so. Awesome. What resources can we give our friends that are listening to this podcast right now? Where should they be directing their attention? How can they spread the word? How can we help you, Michael? I want to help you. And well, I, I know I'm doing that with this podcast right now, but are. I, I, I want to keep helping, man. This is something that's near and dear to me. Okay, well, kids. to start with, I think we're the second ones out of the hopper. About 20 years ago, another group called Headsprout wrote a program, a reading program for kids. It's still out there and still doing well, and it's it's quality. Okay, uh, We're the second ones out of the hopper, uh, and ours is based on direct instruction, precision teaching, and behavior analysis. So it's slightly different, but much it's getting powerful results. Okay. And what we've done is to create 120 lessons that will teach a child how to read to a high school level. Okay. And so basically people can go to the website and, and download the first five lessons just to try it out for free. Fabulous. Try it before you buy it. Okay. Now, it's horribly expensive because it's uh, for five lessons, we're charging $16.95. <laughs> Horribly expensive, as you say. <laughs> Less money than you can spend on a beer watching a Blue Jays game. Well, exactly. But the thing about it is that we're working with a lot of homeschoolers. Yes. And they have five kids and one paycheck. Yes. So you can't put a $90 ticket on something because they you just excluded them from the marketplace. And I'd rather have more people, you know, using it for less money. Yes. And we're we're just nip and tuck trying to get this thing out the door. Yes. Yes. But at some point, it'll come back. It, it always does. When you give, it does come back. No, it doesn't, doesn't always. I know I've already lost a $5 million company. Ah, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, okay. I, That's I will. okay. We're still here. We're still doing what we think is the best. Yeah, yeah. 
I uh, I think it's beautiful what you're doing. I I think it's fabulous, and I I I I know you're a debater. We talked about this last week. You've you've got an education in debating, and I I would love to debate you uh, with regard to the concept of of giving and getting. It, it may not always come back in dollars, but my gosh, uh, I, I would have to suspect that the love that people have for you and what you're doing and what your mission is 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 significant i i i just i i really really want to tell you how how unbelievably um grateful i am to have met you and uh and 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 just i i want to help you because i love what you're doing okay well alex uh when you open teach your children well the book that i copy i sent you yes at the front of it says settlers get the or sorry pioneers get the arrows (laughs) settlers get the land Yes, yes. Okay. I've heard that that I, saying before. I love it. Okay. I was I have been among the group of pioneers. Yes. And Johnson came, you know, I helped him get started. A number of different people yes. that started out, you know, suggested by Og and 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 Zig and other people mm-hmm. uh, to get this outside the schools and into the main the main society. Uh so you know, that's uh, you're going to get arrows before you get kudos. And uh, I got a I got a couple of arrow shirts. I mean, yeah. I got fired. I got fired about three times. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, that, that that's what happens. That's what happens to pioneers, right? Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I've I've heard uh, the saying that, uh, boy, unless you have haters, you're not making much of a difference, <laughs> which is which is always interesting to me. And I, I don't know whether I totally agree or totally disagree yeah. or it's somewhere yeah. in between. But you've got if it to were that easy. Everybody be doing it, right? Yeah. Okay. So your website that we should all check out is share that with us, would you? It's called uh, MalonyMethod.com. My last name Maloney M A L O N E Y method.com and that was actually named by an by a publisher of a, of a homeschooling magazine okay mary pride she said we're going to call this the maloney method in in your article so it just stuck and it stuck i love it i love it it's <laughs> uh it's it's fabulous the alliteration is perfect i remember it it's easy to remember yeah and we can find you on linkedin as well under michael maloney yeah um, facebook yeah facebook LinkedIn. keep on posting michael because i i'd love a ton of people to hear this podcast i'd love a ton of people to share your material to get it out there to make comments to do what you can to um, to spread the word that that yeah. there are solutions out there and these solutions work. And like you said, they're not terribly expensive. They're there. And a lot of them are free. Uh, when COVID first hit, we took yeah. every every we've written 30 books. OK, we took everything from those 30 books and threw them up on the website for free to help teachers and parents who were suddenly, you know, at home with kids trying to figure out what are they going to do? Yes. And we had like 100,000 downloads of our curriculum uh, and because it was free. Yes. Uh, yes. Did you have book sales? Did you have, accol- did you have accolades and, and feedback? Oh, my gosh. I oh, used yeah, of course we did. But uh, but our book sales went down to by my 90 percent. Of course. Of and course. we had to stop doing it because we otherwise we were going to go bankrupt. Yes. Yes. But, uh, yeah. We had the help of Rotary. 
they okay. they published it for us, and, and they're big help with our Amarok Society program as well. So, you know, we've got we got good friends in good places. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, anything else you want to add, Michael? Before we rock and roll here. No, uh, you've done a marvelous job of asking the questions, Alex. You were well, well prepared. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I, I'm just uh, I, I'm an eternal student, Good. and um, mm-hmm. it is a sincere joy uh, to, to, to be your friend and to understand what you're doing and to try and help you uh, spread the word. I, I, will, I will do it incessantly. I have three kids myself. Um, I love kids. Uh, you know, the... the, the um, it's true that they're they're definitely our future. So let's let's continue to give them the best shot at being able to exercise their creativity, use their imaginations, and become compassionate human beings that advance our planet and our civilization. And I, if I can do anything to help that cause, I'm in, man. I'm in. Okay. Well, so we can you. use your help. Thank you for the interview today. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to have a chat some other day, let's uh, do it again. I'd love that, Michael. And when I'm in your neck of the woods, I'm going to give you a ring because I've, okay. <laughs> I've got friends and family in your neck of the woods, and I can't wait to uh, to meet you in person. All right. That's great. Well, thank right, you my so friend. much for your time. Take yeah, care. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all the best. And everybody else, let's support Michael to the extent that we can. And let's uh, let's do our part. This is important stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You too. <laughs>